Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United City Greensboro podcast, a church in the heart of Greensboro with a desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our community at unitedcitygso.com. Enjoy today's teaching. Wow. Can I just like get an amen for the book of Romans? Like, what a book. And it's dense and it's, it's deep and it's wide and there's so much in it. But I've just so enjoyed, I, I've unfortunately not been present in the room the past couple of weeks, but I've kept up with the podcast and just so enjoyed our time to it. And um, Spencer's just doing an awesome job teaching our community. Um, so what we're going to do today, we're going to go into Romans 5. So pumped. So go ahead and turn there, if you would. Um, we're not going to read all of Romans 5, but we are going to take the kind of the primary chunk, a primary chunk of Romans 5. Um, we're not going to actually start, our primary text is not the beginning. We're actually going to start in verse 12. We're going to work through verse 21. That's what our job is today. Um, what I'm not going to do today is verse by verse. It's just, there's just too much, I think. Um, what I would rather do is zoom out and give us a lens by which to view Romans 5 well, um, especially because we're kind of in a transition point uh, in the book. We're moving into like the Jesus as representative portion of the text here. So I really want us to, to be able to grasp this so that when you go back home, you can read the text and understand it yourself, right? That's what we want to do. We want to create a relationship with the text so that we can uh, be Bible readers our own, our own selves. So, um, however, I'm going to read this full section, and then we're going to come around and start talking about things that we need to understand this text. Cool. Does that, that sound good? Awesome. <clears throat> Let's see if my mouth will not dry out while I do this. <laughs> Romans 5, verse 12 through 21. I'm in the CSB, just trying it out. So here we go. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He, Adam, is a type of the coming one. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by one man's trespass the many died, how much more, having the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man's Jesus Christ, has grace overflowed to the many." And the gift is not like the one man's sin. After many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. If by the one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation to everyone, so also... Through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness 
resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What do you say? This is the word of God for God's people. Is that right? Is that, is that a little bit off? I grew up Baptist, all right? <laughs> cool. Amen. What a passage. So what Paul does prior to the passage that we just read is he gives us a couple paragraphs that really connect the texts of Romans 1 through 4 to this almost transition point. So I just want to read a couple verses from the paragraphs that come just before this. And, and, and again, what they do, so, so Spencer talked last week and past couple weeks about different views of uh, justification, different atonement theories and such. These verses, I think, are, are kind of a transition point for us as we move into looking at Jesus as representative. So I don't think they're going to be on the screen. I didn't make slides for these, but I, I'm just going to read them. Just, just lean in. This is verse, if you want to look at it with me, uh, verses, so chapter 5, verse 1 through 2 is the first one I'm going to read. And it's this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. That's our first one. Next one is kind of... Uh, in, in the CSB, they break this up in paragraphs. This is the next paragraph. It's verse 6 through 8. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proved his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So these are, these are a couple passages that really help us connect what was being discussed the past couple weeks, and I would really encourage you, again, if you haven't listened to it or if you need to go back and listen to it again, to listen to kind of what's been going on as we're working through Romans, these ideas of justification that are coming up. And there's multiple theories that I think as we weave them together, they really help us understand what did the sacrifice of Jesus do for us. So, so these help us. But now we're moving forward into this section again I want to remind us that is explaining Jesus as representative, representative. Okay, so I want to remind everyone, I think it was last week, it might have been two weeks ago, it was, it was actually probably two weeks ago, um, Spencer made a cool point. He made a point about our guy, Paul, historically. He said, Paul was a Bible scholar, a Torah scholar. Anybody remember him saying that? That's really important, actually. Guys, Paul just wasn't like some rabbi or some teacher that was like kind of low level. This guy, he knew his Bible like way better than any of us do and probably ever will. Okay, Paul, he, he understood his scriptures. And what Paul, what his worldview was most shaped by was a, a section of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, section of the Hebrew Bible called the Torah. What the Torah was for the Jewish people was a five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that we, we would call the law, but what they understood the Torah as was more the instruction of God. This was God coming into the human predicament and saying, this is the way to, lead, to live life to a point of flourishing within your context. You see, God didn't want his chosen people 
who were the Jewish people at the time. He didn't want his Jewish people not to understand him at all. He didn't want them to not have any kind of revelation, any kind of instruction in the midst of all the socio-economic, political stuff that was going on in the ancient world. He stepped into their world and he gave his instruction. And they meditated and they chewed on and they lived by this thing for hundreds and thousands of years. And by the time that Paul comes along, they have millennia of meditation and writings on the Torah because of how central and significant it was for them. I think that should compel us. As we look at the Hebrew Bible into the Greek New Testament, do we, do we have that same care for it that Paul would have? So as a Torah scholar, Paul had a particular vision as he's considering ultimate restoration. You see, Paul understands and the Torah explains and really the whole world understands there is something wrong. <laughs> Can I get an amen? There's something off. Okay, something's not quite right. In the West where we've got like, we're probably the closest to utopia that anybody has ever been. And we're like, yeah, something is wrong. Something's broken. Paul understood this. The Torah itself actually gave probably, definitely the most compelling vision for why the world is broken. Paul understood this, this word new creation. Paul had a vision for it, and he had a vision for how it was going to come about. I want to look at our first slide. I'm sorry, I guess it would be our third slide, which would be the one for, there you go. Yep, that's right. These verses, they seem obscure, they seem random, but I think they actually are a major key for how Paul envisioned how ultimate redemption occurred. Let's just look at them. These are the way, part of the way, that the Torah, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, dealt with sin, sin and brokenness. The Torah explained that sin led to death, leading to brokenness. And these verses are part of how Torah deals with sin. But let's look at them. If one person sins unintentionally, this is God speaking, if someone sins unintentionally, notice that word, unintentionally, he is to present a year-old female goat as a sin offering. The priest will then make an atonement before the Lord on behalf of the person who acted in error, sinning unintentionally. And when he makes atonement for sin, he will be forgiven. Emphasis added. Is it in there? No, okay. Um, pretend that those words unintentionally are underlined. Notice this. If the person sins unintentionally. You see, Torah didn't just give laws and expect everyone to live perfectly. Torah understood that people were going to mess up. And before Jesus came, there was this whole system that existed for the removal of sin, of guilt, all these things. But there was one problem. There was a type of sin that Torah actually didn't deal with. It was called defiant sin. Sin that actually came from the core of the person that said, I want to defy 
my creator and rebel against him. So let's go to the next slide. Let's read this. But if the person who acts defiantly, whether native or resident alien, blasphemes the Lord, that person is to be cut off from his people. He will certainly be cut off because he has despised the Lord's word and broken his command. His guilt remains on him. Notice that word defiant. There's a problem here. Usually when I sin, I'm kind of intending to. Well, the rabbis of old didn't miss this. Great discussion happened around this idea, these concepts. And Paul himself knows about it. As Paul is looking at ultimate redemption, he's realizing Torah wasn't broken. There wasn't anything wrong with it. God gave it, okay? We need to comprehend that. It just wasn't sufficient. It wouldn't do the job that needed to be done for ultimate redemption. An outside mechanism had to come in. Here's a, I, I think this is the best way to understand that outside mechanism. Anybody ever, ever heard of King David? Most of us? Okay. If you haven't, King David was, he's kind of important in the Bible. He was like the man after God's own heart. He was the guy that God came along and said, hey, I'm going to make the future king Messiah. He's going to rule from your throne. That's David. Okay. Big, big deal. Okay. Wrote a lot of the, most of the Psalms. David sinned intentionally at one point in his life. If you don't know the story, he uh, stole a man's wife, slept with her, got her pregnant, then killed the guy, and then took the man's wife as his wife. I mean, he probably didn't mean to, you know, that was an accident. I'm sorry. No, high level intentionality there, right? Okay, like plan things out. David's sin was forgiven. I didn't put the scripture, but there's actually, I think it's a psalm. Maybe maybe it's in the book of Samuel. And it actually uses the word forgiven. How? Torah, the thing that God gave for him to get forgiven, doesn't cover it. You know what David experienced? He experienced an outside mechanism for forgiveness called the mercy and grace of God. He said, David said, sacrifice and offerings you don't delight in. You know why? Because David knew Torah. He knew there's not a sacrifice for the kind of sin I just did. You know the sacrifice for that kind of sin? A broken and contrite heart. The end of that same psalm where he says, a broken and contrite heart you'll receive. He says, at the end of it, he says, now I'll bring my sacrifice. He came to God in brokenness and humility. Paul recognizes that for people, for his people and the rest of the cosmos, Torah was not sufficient to redeem it all an outside mechanism had to be in force. So for us, we need to ask the question, 
how was salvation and cosmic redemption achieved? We need to answer this question. Torah wasn't sufficient. Something else had to occur. Let's go to our next slide. We need to answer the question, how was salvation and cosmic redemption achieved? Uh, one more slide, sorry. <laughs> no, that was it, sorry. All right, I haven't preached in a while, forgive me. There we go. No, it isn't. Okay, forget it. I'm just gonna read what I'm trying to say. If you see this slide, you'll know, okay, as I'm reading. The book of Romans has set out to show that everyone is in a specific situation in which they need the mercy of God. Torah didn't cover it. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have rebelled and been defiant. We're all contributing to the brokenness. We need something more. God consigned, this is actually a quote from Romans 11, which we'll get to in a few weeks. God consigned all to disobedience. He put all of us in the category of that extra mechanism so that he might have mercy on all. But what is the mechanism by which this mercy is given? It is, the answer is through the life and death and resurrection of the one that represented every human, Jesus Christ. That's why. That's what, that's how. Torah was insufficient. Something else needed to occur. And God sent his son, the representative of humankind, to die in our place, to live a life of holiness before God. Die, be raised. That's how the mercy of God is applied. But why? But why? Why was his death the thing that worked? Why did his death and resurrection work? Why couldn't like mine or Spencer's or Paul's? Paul was cool. He was good. I mean, he had a rough, rocky past, but he, why? To answer that question, we need to go back to the beginning. We need to look at one place where the scriptures say, here's the answer to the brokenness. I'm just going to, I'm just going to talk for a little bit. I don't have a place really for you to, to turn just because it would take too much time. I just want you to think with me to the very beginning. Let's think about Genesis chapter 3. That's the first place. Genesis 1 and 2, God has created everything perfect, everything beautiful. Time and time again, the word tov is used. It's good. It's good. It's good. And then we hit Genesis chapter 3. And God has appointed a man and a woman to be co-rulers over the earth. And guys, God didn't want them to, to not know good and evil. He wanted them to know that, but not through their own hands, not through their own means. He wanted them to rely on him to know how to rule and reign over the earth. But something happened. They decided through a temptation, they decided that they would take wisdom, the knowledge of how to rule and reign for themselves. 
They went to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil instead of depending on God for instruction. The first act of rebellion. It's pride. It's pride and rebellion. Okay, for most of us, we're like, yeah, that's why everything's broken. Turns out a, uh, a first century Jewish person or someone living even further back would say, well, that's part of it, but that's not the whole reason. Turns out that Genesis has two other almost fall narratives in them. This is important. This one was humans rebelling, but there's more to the story. There's more to the story. Fast forward to Genesis chapter six. Genesis chapter six is this crazy story that we really don't like to talk about because it's like, I just don't think I need to talk about that and try to explain what's going on here. What happens is divine beings, we could call them angels. That's not really the best thing to call them, but we'll just call them that. Angels, divine beings, I'm not gonna call them angels, divine spirit beings that are created by God to help like rule and reign within this cosmic thing. There weren't just humans created, there were also spirits created and they were good. Genesis chapter six is where the fall narrative of the spiritual realm occurs. Genesis chapter six, the sons of God, read divine spiritual beings, they come down and they transgress their boundaries. They take wives from humanity. They transgress boundaries. God did not give them permission to do that. And there's all kinds of stuff. We, I could preach like two more sermons on Genesis chapter six and what was actually going on there. All I'll say now is boundaries were transgressed. Rebellion occurred. And now we have two storylines flowing and weaving in and out of each other throughout the rest of the Bible of the broken rebellion of humanity and the broken rebellion in the cosmos. And they weave in and out throughout the whole rest of the narrative. And in the background of it all, you need to remember there is principalities and powers, divine spirit beings that are also at war here. Paul, Paul brings this up in Ephesians 6. He says, we don't wage war against flesh and blood. You see a human, but you got to remember there's another thing going on. This is because Genesis 6 occurred. There's actually one more place we won't talk about much, but it's Genesis 11. And this is almost humans and divine spirit beings both having a, a rebellion act together. It's called the Tower of Babel, which is how humans said, hey, we want to create a name for ourselves. We want to build a tower up into the heavens. It wasn't, this, this wasn't, they're trying to make a tall building. This was a place for the, the gods, to the divine spirit beings to come down again like they did before. This is it's wild stuff. And all of it is rebellion, pride, self-reliance, transgress boundaries. Kind of like I did this morning when I sinned against God or like we did this past week. Rebellion is in the cosmos. The picture we find by the opening of Genesis 12 is that the entire universe has rebelled against its creator. 
and the cosmos has descended into brokenness. So God began his plan. And Genesis 12 opens up with the call of Abraham. And if, if you continue the story along, Abraham becomes a family, that family becomes a nation, and years down the road, that nation produces a man named Jesus Christ. Guys, it is in the context of this story, Genesis 3, 6, and 11, this story of disobedience, rebellion, and brokenness that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has its potency. Everyone rebelled. Everyone was defiant. But him. Why? Did his death, burial, and resurrection have its effect? Because everyone failed, but he came and succeeded. Um, pull up my next slide. Hopefully it's my next slide. Yes, we got it. Okay, Philippians 2. Philippians 2, holy cow. It's like the whole story just comes to a climax in this passage. I'm, I'm elated. Okay. This explains um, the exaltation of Jesus in terms of his unique life. So let's just look at this and notice a few things. I actually don't have it up on my... I'm going to pull up a slide here. Okay. Paul is instructing uh, one of his congregations. He says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mind as Christ Jesus. Here we go. Who being in the nature of God, he's up here. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. So he's up here. He comes down here to servanthood being made into human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. He takes another step lower. Even death on a cross, another step lower. Therefore, because of that, because he was up here and brought himself lower and lower and lower in obedience to the point of death, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Where? Where? In heaven, read divine rebellious spirit beings, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Guys, the whole story comes together here. The rebellion of Genesis 3, humanity. The rebellion of Genesis 6, the spirit beings. All of them had puffed up pride. Jesus came low and therefore gets exalted above them all. This is what Paul's point is. Why? Why was he exalted? It's his humility. Anderson, you, I don't know where you're at. Bro, when, wherever you're at. Yeah, bro, when you got up here and you were like, Gentle and lowly. Literally, this is in my, in my outline. What was it about Jesus that was such a compelling life that God would say, this is what I'm talking about? His life 
was the reason his death would bring the mechanism of mercy. I want to read this verse. I just picked up the book, Gentle and Lowly. Who's read that? A few people. If you haven't read that, which I haven't fully read that yet, compelling. It's really compelling, the little bit I've read so far. And it's all about the character of Jesus being gentle and lowly. Let's read this. Um, Matthew 11, this isn't a slide, but Matthew 11, 28 through 30, just, just listen. Come to me, we know this verse, all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me because I am, what? Gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your soul for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Guys, this is the one time that Jesus tells us what his heart is like. The one time. And what does he say? Gentle, lowly, humble. He would go out and he would rebuke a Pharisee hard. And then he would leave and go set a child on his knee and pray over them and say, let the little children come to me. It's his character. It's his nature. It's lowly. So let's bring this back around to Romans 5 as we start landing this plane. Probably gone a little longer than I was supposed to, but what you'll notice in Romans 5 is that the author is emphasizing, uh, especially through the text that we, that we had repetitively, he's emphasizing the obedience of Jesus in its explanation of, what, of his work, of what Jesus did. It's making reference to his life and death and speaking of it both in term, speaking of both his life and death in terms of obedience to the Father. Up to this point, it's there, but it's more about, more talking about the rebellion of humans. It's talking about the, the justifying work of his death. Now we're talking about his obedience as being part of what is leading to life. And if we have the whole story of human rebellion, divine rebellion leading to brokenness, that makes so much sense. We all rebelled and he didn't. <laughs> now I know. Now I understand. Let's look at uh, Romans 5, 19. Through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. It's just one example. Where the rest of the universe rebelled, Jesus obeyed. So, okay. What you notice um, is Jesus and Adam are compared and contrasted through our section. Um, uh, I think you've talked about it a few, a few times in your talks, um, but there's a great word that I, I keep hearing when uh, Jesus is spoken of. It's Jesus as our federal head. Jesus as the representative of the human race. Um, through Romans 5, 12 through 21, Jesus and the first human Adam, they're compared and contrasted. Jesus and Adam both stood in a place of representative for the human race. Adam was the first human. He was given uh, kingship over, over creation. He was a representative of the human race, but so is Jesus. And therefore, this is amazing, 
Both of their actions, therefore, have consequences for all of humanity. This is what Romans 5 is saying. Both of these guys, their actions are going to have consequences, cosmic consequences. Um, uh, an interesting passage, Romans 5, 14, he, Adam, is a type of the coming one. It's typology. It's types and shadows. What Adam's role is pointing to what Jesus's role would be. Adam was a king over the earth. Jesus will be a king over the earth. Um, Romans 5, 15, another place where they're, the two of them are contrasted. The gift is not like the trespass, a gift of, of grace. For if by one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. They're compared and contrasted. Jesus' act of obedience brought life to all, whereas Adam's act brought death to all. But here's the, here's the deal. Jesus' act, act actually subsumes and covers over the act of Adam. Jesus' life touches both regions, the humans and the divine. Adam's brought death to creation. The Genesis 6 brought death to the heavens. Jesus' act is so much greater than just Adam's that it brought redemption to it all. Both regions are touched. Go to my last, not, not my last slide, my next slide. I'm new to slides, so. The result of Jesus' obedience, eternal redemption for both the heavens and the earth. Um, Spencer gave me a, a cool, I just want to leave this picture with you, um, a cool picture. It's called the Great Reversal. Um, I, I don't remember who came up with it, but um, humans tried to be gods in the beginning resulting in the fall. To restore all things, God became man to restore, and be to restore all things and be exalted up. What a cool picture. Humans tried to elevate ourselves, brought, brought the fall. God said, okay, to reverse it, all become man. But God became man to bring redemption. All right, here's my last point. What's our response? We looked at all of this. Everyone rebelled. He obeyed. It brought redemption. What's our response? And I want to say this. This is really what Philippians 2 was saying to us. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father was a divine statement to the universe. God was making a point. Guys, when you see the resurrection of Jesus, you need to understand that's a, that is a stamp of approval on him. That's God saying, there is something right going on here. It was God's stamp of approval on Jesus' life. It was God saying to the universe, the rebellious heavens and the rebellious earth, this is what I'm talking about. This is what I was looking for. Anderson, you can come on up now. Guys, our response to this is to recognize what God is trying to say 
in the exaltation of Jesus. We don't just look at the exaltation of Jesus and say, oh, praise Jesus. We need to say, okay, God is saying something to the human race through this. God is saying this man's life is the life that leads to eternal life. What's the logical response? I want to be like him. What he did made him worthy to rule and to reign. I need to say, if that's what's worthy, I need to follow suit. Guys, part of faith isn't just believing that Jesus' death forgives your sin. Part of your faith in Jesus, the saving faith that you need, is to believe that his life is what, his ways and his teachings is what leads to life and flourishing. That's part of your call as a believer. And the life, death, and then exaltation of Jesus is supposed to compel the disciple forward into wanting to be like him. Look, when you find the ways of Jesus as beautiful, you are at that point moving forward into true maturity as a disciple of Jesus. We can say yes to them to a point, but guys, we got to find him beautiful. We got to say, I want to be like him. This is a fast forward to, I think, Bania maybe is speaking on this, Romans 8. How is this done? How are we transformed into that man, Jesus? It's by the power of the Spirit. Romans 8 talks about this, the power of the Holy Spirit. When you find Jesus beautiful, the Father says, oh, I like that. They want, they like my son. I'm going to give them my spirit. Um, because this wouldn't be uh, a true United City message if I didn't have a John Mark Comer slide. I got to throw it in there. So you will notice also there's a typo. You might not have noticed if I hadn't pointed out. There's spit instead of spirit. I'm sorry. I don't know how that happened. I copied and pasted. Anyway, this is, a, I think, a good practical to close us. Actually, let me look at it on my screen. Every time you sow to the Spirit and invest the resources of your mind and body into nurturing your inner man or woman, woman's connection to the Spirit of God, you plant something deep into uh, the humus of your central fulcrum, which over time takes root and bears the fruit of Christ-like character. If it's the Spirit of God that help us, helps us live out the character of God, we want to sow to the Spirit. Guys, Jesus has been exalted. We want to find him beautiful, and we want to go out to be like that man in the world around us so that we can bring life into the brokenness. Amen. God, I pray over United City, soon to be Emmaus Church. Lord Jesus, you succeeded where humans failed. You succeeded where the heavenly beings failed. You came and you obeyed the ways of God. You lived out perfect obedience. And then you gave us a compelling vision to live out of. And we say, Jesus, you're beautiful. We want to be like you. Will you help us? 
God, will you transform a community into your ways? God, we, we don't want to just listen to a message. We don't want to just affirm a doctrine. We want to be transformed. Spirit, will you come here? The Lord is in this place. Will you transform me and Spencer and the congregation, all of us, to be more like Jesus? We want eternal life like he had. Father, will you see that desire in us and send the gift of the Spirit? We want to live like him in a broken world to bring redemption. Help us with that now, Lord. We love you. We bless you. In the worthy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.